holocausts don't begin with gas chambers and they don't even begin with tanks and armies. It begins with somebody sitting on a bus or walking down the street and seeing a person who is other from them, who dresses differently, who looks different, who speaks differently. And that person thinking that they are somehow a better person than the other person. Um, that's where it starts, the, you know, from the, that very initial thought of, of feeling superior to someone because of their color or because of their clothes or because of their accent. And if you know, any of us uh, ever feel that, you know, that is something which needs to be looked at in yourself because that's, that, that's where it begins. And you know, we, we just, you know, we've seen a global pandemic which has set a lot of people against each other. Hi. I'm Sylvia Beckerman. Join me today as I talk to an extraordinary woman who is changing the world by making a difference in her life and the lives of those around her. Hi, my name's Jenny Lacote. I'm a British writer. I've just written my first novel, The Girl from the Channel Islands. And uh, welcome to Sylvia and me. Jenny, it's so great to have you here with me today to uh, meet you. You're sitting over in, in Essex, England. I'm here in Connecticut. You just mentioned you're the author. In fact, it's your first novel. It's a historic novel, a historical no novel, The Girl from the Channel Islands. But I want to go back over a little bit more of what you've done um, prior to this uh, novel just being released, actually, um, the beginning of February, and it immediately rose to the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah, we so, uh, we went into the New York Times bestseller list on the first week, and yeah. it's gone up four points this week to number 10. I mean, absolutely astonishing. I mean, when I wrote this, I thought I was going to be lucky to get it published at all. Um, well, and so for, for this level of success, is is it's mind-blowing. It really is extraordinary. And as we were talking a few minutes uh, before when we first met, the other thing that happened to be whether a coincidence or, you know, people say there are no such thing as coincidences, a, um, a movie that you wrote, Another Mother's Son, which is a true story, during the same time period, uh, the Nazis taking over, and the Holocaust, that just came out, released on Amazon Prime. So you've got two winners going on at the same time. Well, they, they, do, they do kind of link together a little bit, yeah, because the, the film which came out in 2017, Another Mother's Son, uh, is about my family, um, because when the Channel Islands were invaded by the Nazis in 1940, my family, who lived for many decades in the islands became trapped there so my parents were raised as kids during the occupation and that was a story I'd always wanted to tell so uh, yeah so I wrote the film um, a number of years ago and it, it came out here in 2017 but it's fantastic good fortune that it's actually available for people to watch at the same time as the books come out because of course they are both set in the same historical period of the same Nazi occupation. Now, can you tell us, not everyone knows the story of the Channel Islands. And I know that 
over the recent years, there have been uh, stories that are, you know, some are true, some are not true, some are half truth, some are, and a lot of people don't know the story of the Channel Islands. Um, We do still know about uh, the um, German occupation, we know about the concentration camps, we know about, you know, the invasions, but Channel Islands, not specifically. So can you give a little bit of background about Channel Islands and the Nazi occupation? Well, I'm not surprised that people over there haven't heard much about it, because even in Britain, there's a lot of people who don't really know this story. Um, First of all, you have to know where the Channel Islands are, because that kind of makes sense. They're a tiny little group of very small islands, which are much closer geographically to France than they are to England. Um, But they've always been, for many hundreds of years, they've been part of the British Isles. Hitler was very keen on getting hold of these islands because he knew that he could use them as a stepping stone uh, because, of course, he wanted to invade Britain. Uh, Also, it was a psychological feather in his cap to get some British territory. Um, The islands were effectively defenceless in the Second World War because the British didn't have the resources in 1940 to defend them. So when the, uh, the Nazis crossed France, um, came through the Maginot Line and crossed France in 1940, the next stop was the Channel Islands. As far as they were concerned, the next stop after that was England. So uh, yeah, they, they bombed the harbour and they invaded in 1940 and the islands were then occupied for the whole of that five-year period. And even when the uh, D-Day landings happened in 1944, uh, because of the fortifications and they just the allies just didn't have the resources to uh, to re- to liberate the islands at that point they effectively went around them and said we will come back for you when we've made more progress so the islands had to go through the entire war and weren't liberated until may 1945 so yeah it was um, it was it was a dark period for them and your parents lived through that they were they were children mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I heard you tell a story uh, of, of your dad when he was five. Yeah, my, my dad told me the story. I, I don't know, it might have been my grandmother, actually, his, my, his mother, who told me the story um, that he barely remembers himself um, when the bombs started dropping in the harbour. And, of course, they'd had reconnaissance planes coming over for weeks. They'd had lots of flights, but all of a sudden this was something else. This was bombs, this was strafing, and they knew that the invasion proper had started. And my father was five years old and he had a little toy tin hat and a little toy gun, and he rushed out into the garden and was popping up at the sky going, don't worry, mummy, I'm going to get those German soldiers for you. And she had to rush out into the garden and pull him inside going, darling, it's not a game. It's um, these are real planes with real bullets and you have to come in the house straight away. Well, that's uh, it's just horrific to to hear and know that, you know, this is it's, it's factual. So the girl from the Channel Islands is your first novel. Let's we'll get back to this awful time period of time. But what? What um, what was the reason why you decided to write this novel? Yes, you had written the movie, the screenplay before, but really your your background, uh, you were actually a stand-up 
comedian. I was a stand-up. I was a stand-up in the eighties. That's right. Um, although I retired from that a number of years ago. Um, and and you, wrote, you wrote your own material for that. Yeah, I wrote my own material for that. And that's, I, I suppose that's where the writing began because I wrote my own uh, material for stand-up and then I wrote sitcoms, um, which seemed like a fairly natural progression from stand-up. Sure. And then um, I moved into soaps and dramas and then I moved into standalones and more serious historical subjects. So it was kind of, uh, it was a slow uh, process over several years, but each step seemed to be quite logical at the time. And I found that I really loved writing real stuff that was based on real life, historical stuff. I liked the research as well. Um, and I'd always wanted to write my family story um, for a number of years because um, I didn't know if there were any other writers in the family. There were none that I knew of. And uh, I realized that, now, I wasn't getting getting any younger. The people involved who've been involved in the story certainly weren't getting any younger. And I just thought this is a time I, I need to do this. So I started that in 2012. Um, and there was so much other information that you can't get that much information into a screenplay because it's quite a tight format. So there was lots of stuff I hadn't been able to include. And when um, the heady story came to my attention, uh, I just thought it would make a great story. There is still so many occupation stories that have um, have only been told a little bit or have not been fully fully come to light. Um, and I thought it would make a cracking story. And I thought I would like to have a go at writing a book. Um, I didn't know whether I could pull it off. Um, and I just thought this would be a, a good format for all that kind of background material that I hadn't been able to use. So uh, yeah, I so I decided to have a go at it in 2016. And you're having a go at it um, as the New York Times, as we mentioned before, it, it's, it's a hit. It's, it's not just a winner, but it's something that should be read because of the story, because so much it has, not, um, has not been told in certain ways. And there are so many people who lived it who are either no longer living or are very, very old. And so as younger people, the story needs to be continued. It cannot be forgotten, especially with a lot of what's going on in today's world. This is something that people need to remember because if we don't know where it came from and we forget about it, when it takes place again, you know, everyone's gonna go, oh my, how did we not know this was coming? Absolutely. There, there were some quite terrifying statistics um, came out of a recent um, survey in Britain. Uh, a frightening number of people, something like a quarter of people under 25 um, were not quite sure about what the Holocaust was. Um, quite a frightening amount had only read about it vaguely on social media and therefore weren't sure whether it was real or not. Okay. And when you think that this is something that happened, there are still people alive today who lived through this. I think it is vitally important that we remember. And because we have seen, um, as, as you know, and as I know as well, um, that there are people in both our countries at the moment who would quite happily see a return to, to that sort of existence. And, um, and we must not let them get a foothold because mm -hmm. those kind, that kind of poison can spread very quickly. 
Um, so yeah, I feel that not only is it important to to tell the history of the of the um, of that time so that people are aware of what happened, but also because I think it sheds light for today as well. Most definitely. And you you take it from a part of history that a lot of people don't know about, and that is the resistance. And people who were helping their fellow people, some they didn't even really know, they might have just met, um, and they were appalled of what was going on and wanted to help at risk to themselves, which mm. brings me to Hetty's story. Uh, can you, how did you care about Hetty? Uh, well, the, the story had, had um, really only started to come to light a number of years ago. Hetty did an interview with um, uh, a, a local historian and, and gave her side of the story, which she'd not done before. Um, but then the story really emerged into public consciousness a few years ago uh, when Dorothea, who's one of the real characters in the book, um, uh, Dorothea was uh, the, the real Dorothea, was awarded a Yad Vashem award for her services to helping, um, you know, assistance to the Holocaust and, and trying to prevent um, somebody going, being deported and, and taken to the camps. And, um, just, and just, I just want to interrupt for one second, because for people who don't know what Yad Vashem is, can you explain to them what, because they might not have ever heard it. Yeah, Yad Vashem um, is an is a uh, Israeli organization. It's a Jewish organization which um, is for the promotion of Holocaust education, and uh, they give awards to people who are, with stories that are coming out even now, many decades later, um, sometimes posthumously, as in this case, of people who have supported um, Jewish people against the Holocaust, basically, um, and, and who have protected them, sheltered them, and have been heroes, effectively, uh, very often at great personal risk to themselves, as is, as is true in this case, because if Dorothea had been caught, um, if Kurt had been caught, as it happened to my own family, they were caught, and we know what happened to them. Um, so, yeah, th these, these people were taking an enormous chance and, uh, and, and many decades later, Yad Vashem still gives those awards to people in recognition of that courage. Well, as we said, you know, we're talking about the resistance, people who put themselves at great risk. Uh, so the story of Hetty and, and Dorothea, um, Hetty was a Jew uh, who was basically hiding in plain sight, which We've heard stories of people actually in, in trying to survive and save themselves, hide and, you know, try to hide in plain sight. Can you, and, and in doing that, she was working for a German. So can you uh, tell us a little bit, when writing historical fiction, you're basing the story on facts, mm. but you're- yeah. You're, you, what part are you putting into the story? How are you right. doing this so that people can really get a sense of who these people were, what they were going through, you know, the fear, the, the love for, you know, for the people they were helping um, and so on? 
Well, it, it always depends on how much is known about the original story. In the case of my family, for example, we knew quite a lot about what happened. There was quite a lot of detail that was known to us. In the case of uh, Hedy, there was only kind of the bare bones of the story that was known. All of that is in the book. We know that Hedy arrived, um, she escaped the Angelus, that she crossed the continent. Um, and she was a very young woman. She was only 21, it was 20 or 21 when she when she escaped. So she was very young, very vulnerable. She arrived in Jersey. I think she had originally planned not to stay in Jersey, but she ended up being there thinking she was safe in 1938. Um, and of course, made a, a very poor decision because that was the one place that she really shouldn't have been. Um, so we know that she, when the invasion happened, she, was, she must have been very frightened. There were very few Jewish people in the Channel Islands at that point. So we know that uh, she lied to the authorities, to the aliens officer, and pretended not to be Jewish, but they, were, they still listed her as being Jewish because they believed that she was. Um, she took a job with the Germans. We don't quite know under what circumstances, but she, but she worked for the Germans and she used that situation to her advantage um, to help uh, local doctors. So, so this is all in the book. And, uh, and then when she was, um, when she came across, I don't want to give too much of the story away no, here, no. obviously, but, no. uh, but when things got very, very dangerous for her and she had to go into hiding, we know that it was Dorothea who took her in. Um, we know the house where they lived, at, that house now has a blue plaque outside with, uh, with their names on it. And, um, and we know that Kurt um, was one of the people who brought them food and, and kept both of them alive. So both Dorothea and Kurt took enormous risks because Hedy was a wanted person, a wanted Jewish escapee by that point. And um, if they had been found, you know, if, if they had, uh, if, if they had found, uh, if been caught helping her, that would have been the end of them. So uh, the, the courage involved in that was, was huge. Um, uh, but we know that she, well, again, I don't want to give too much of the no, story no, no. away, but um, it was, uh, yeah, I don't want to my, be main, my, my main point was being able to take the facts. Yeah, that's and, right. Um, and, and give it. Absolutely. And give it the character. Um, yeah, because the, the, the rest of it, you know, how, how they met, the relationships, how those relationships formed and developed is something that I had to imagine by using the information I knew about the occupation in general and trying to figure out what seemed realistic to me under those circumstances. Well, your parents were actually, um, or your grandparents were sort of part of the resistance without it being given a name back then. Can you tell a little bit about uh, your grandparents? I know you, you um, were able to interview your grandmother uh, mm. before she passed away. Uh, so what were some of the things that she told you, aside from that unbelievable story of your dad at the age of five, what other things did she tell you that you had, that you were amazed about, that you had no idea? Well, she, she told me lots of bits and pieces. She told me, I remember her telling stories about um, how when they, they had whole sections of the occupation where there was virtually no electricity, the electricity and power was only on for a couple of hours a day. Uh, and they would have to do everything that they needed to do within that time. So obviously you couldn't buy new clothes. So if you had to sew on 
buttons or mend clothes. You had to try. They had a little coke stove that they used to drop. Used to drop a, 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 a match onto it, and it would flare for a, a moment, and it would give you time to do a few stitches. And then you would have to repeat that every time you wanted to, to stitch a few things. Um, she talked about you know the, the Red Cross parcels they received and how exciting that was, and she remembered what was in them. Um, how that they, she said, we, we never fraternized with the Germans in any way. In fact, even all those years later, and I said, but it must have been quite hard. You know, you had all these soldiers, many of whom, of course, did not want to be there. A lot of the regular soldiers just did not want to be on the island. They wanted to go home to their families. They weren't, um, you know, they were, they were no more enthusiastic about the war than the islanders were. Um, but there was a huge separation uh, between the two groups for most of the time and uh, a, a lot of great ill will, particularly as the war went on and the Germans took more and more food and the radios were taken away. And when they really started turning the screw, things got very, um, yeah, the, the, what had started off as kind of distant resentment became a real hatred towards the end of the war, I think. Well, you grew up on on Channel Islands, you moved to England when you were 18. When were you aware of the history of, of what took place? I think I was always aware of it to some degree. I mean, if you visit Jersey, you, you can't really you can't really miss the, the architecture of the landscape. I mean, there are there are still German bunkers there. There are uh, sea walls which made of grey concrete, which are actually anti-tank walls, which the Germans put in. Um, I can still remember as a kid, uh, not really getting the significance of that. You used to chalk out your hopscotch on, on, the, on the top of the bunker and you would play hopscotch on the German bunkers. That's an extraordinary image to me now. So it was always a kind of a wallpaper. I always knew it was there. But as a kid, you don't have a lot of interest in something that for you at that point happened donkeys years ago. You know, you're not interested. Um, even though, of course, now as an older person, I realized I was born only 15 years after the end of the war. It's, it's no time at all. Um, so it was a little late. I think I was probably in my 30s before I really started getting interested. And, and I realized that my family um, photographs of them were coming up on documentaries that were shown on national British television. Um, and I realized that this was actually a very big story and that this was people I was related to. And I started to feel a bit of a responsibility to, to, to say a little bit more about it, particularly when, you know, I found myself, I would go to parties and people would, if they knew anything about the islands being occupied at all, they would say things like, oh yeah, I heard something about that, but they, they all collaborated with the Germans, didn't they? And I thought, okay, I, I think this is some, I think some sort of re-education program is, is required here because you know, my, my great aunt and my great uncle were sent to concentration camps as a result of, uh, of what they did, which was trying to shelter uh, a Russian slave worker who had escaped from his camp. So uh, yeah, it was, um, I felt it was kind of a social responsibility, but I, I didn't really take it seriously till a little later in my life, I think. Well, were you able to, um, did your parents talk about it while you were growing up? They didn't. And more interestingly, I think my grandparents didn't speak about it at all. I think there was a great deal of trauma that was involved um, I think there was um, 
I, I think that it was a period that they chose not to remember. Um, so it was it was difficult. Even interviewing my grandmother years later, it was it was quite difficult to to pull anything out of her to to get her to speak about it. Although, of course, once she started, a lot of things came out. Um, so I'm, I'm glad I had that opportunity. And uh, of course, now I go over to the islands and when they showed another mother's son as a premier there to a small select group of people who had lived through the occupation. It was great to hear people, you know, older people standing up and saying, thank you for telling our story. Um, because, you know, you, you, you just you feel a responsibility towards that, obviously, particularly if it's, you know, you're where you grew up and, 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 you, and you want to get the sense of it right. And and that's it. I know that a lot of people who lived through the German occupation and the Holocaust and the camps, um, a lot or most don't want to talk about it. And there are some who do. Mm. Um, in fact, I have a friend whose parents always talk to her about it. She was right. born in one of the DP camps until she was, uh, she lived there until she was five. Um, and so it's, it's, again, it's a story that needs never to be forgotten. Mm. And it's great that you were able to talk to your grandmother. And that once she started talking, she kept on talking because it's as, as horrific and traumatic I'm sure that in some way it felt good for her to tell you. Yeah. Telling you, you're able to continue that history of telling others to make sure no one forgets. I think there has been enough time passed now. I think that there's been a lot more um, documentary, a lot more interest in the history of, of the occupation in the last few years. And I think that's partly because we're aware that there's only a handful of people left alive who actually experienced it firsthand. Um, my father's now in his 80s, and of course he was a child during the war, so he, he remembers it from a, a child's perspective. Um, but yeah, as you say, Im important for, for all of us to remember, I think. Well, so at the same time, you have this wonderful uh, historical novel, The Girl from the Channel Islands, and now here in the US, we have another mother's son, which I saw, which is quite, quite moving. And that's a true story. That is a yes. story of your- Well, they, they, are both, they are both true stories, but, yeah. um, but the, the girl from the Channel Islands is, is probably more fictionalized on the basis that we, we didn't know that much. But yeah, they're, they're both based on fact and the, and the background to them both is, yeah, is entirely true. This is all based on real people, and these, you know, these people lived through these years. So, what is next um, on your list to do? <laughs> um, I'm working on another novel now, um, which is actually, which is actually based on um, it. I didn't want to do any more occupation stories, but it's set in Jersey just after the occupation, which is a period which I think has never really been looked at that much because, as you said, um, it, it was a very traumatic time. There was a, a, a huge aftermath of this. Many people were still suffering with what they had gone through, with the trauma they had gone through for many years. And I think that had a knock-on effect 
for even my generation sure. years later. Um, so I, so that's a, it's a period I'm kind of interested in. So that's, uh, that's what I'm working on at the moment. Um, I've, I've got a first draft. It's going to be a while before that's ready to show, but uh, yeah, that's, um, it's, it's just a different aspect of the same story, really, that I, that I think I'd, I'd like to explore and something that's not really been done before. And you probably have more people that you might be able to talk to who might have been very young, um, you know, right after. Um, as we said before, and it can't be repeated enough, this is history that needs to be never forgotten. Um, and especially in, in, in today's atmosphere, it's, uh, it's horrific that so many, those, those stats that you quoted at the beginning of our conversation, that so few of the younger people know anything about this period of time. Yes, that's, that's right. That's right. And it's, um, yeah, I mean, there obviously been, there have been other genocides since um since yeah. the holocaust that that we know of um but you know only a, a matter of weeks ago there were people bursting into the you know the the seat of american government with you know auschwitz t-shirts on uh this is you know this is this is live history and, and it, it never goes away and i and i think that our um i i did a, a talk for holocaust memorial day um in, in Jersey a couple of years ago. And I remember there was one of the things that, um, that, that I said at, at that time was that uh, Holocausts don't begin with gas chambers and they, they don't even begin with tanks and armies. Yeah. It begins with somebody sitting on a bus or walking down the street and seeing a person who is other from them, who dresses differently, who looks different, who speaks differently. And that person thinking that they are somehow a better person than the other person. Um, that's where it starts, the, you know, from the, that very initial thought of, of feeling superior to someone because of their color or because of their clothes or because of their accent. And if you know, any of us are, ever feel that, you know, that is something which needs to be looked at in yourself because that's, that, that's where it begins. And, you know, we, we just, you know, we've seen a global pandemic, which has set a lot of people against each other. We've been through, um, you know, not to put it on the same level, but Brexit has been hugely divisive here. We've had, you know, families that won't speak to each other. We've got friends that have fallen out. Um, we start to get into that level of division and it's, um, you know, it, it, it's terrifying where those things can end up. So we, we just have to, we have to be very wary of, feelings of superiority or certainties which need to be questioned. And never forget, mm, absolutely. no matter what, never forget. Um, it's, it's, it's at times scary uh, in seeing and hearing what's going on. Mm, absolutely. Um, and, and the amount of hatred that some people feel, and for a lot of them, they don't even know why they feel it. It's just, it snowballs. It goes from the superiority to something else, to something else, to something else. And they feel like they can't stop it. So well, I think, I think it's why uh, issues of poverty are also extremely important because when people feel 
neglected and left behind and ignored, um, it is often those groups which will, which will turn to the wrong, um, the, the, who they perceive to be the baddie who, you know, is responsible for their unhappy lives. Mm-hmm. And they will quite often blame the wrong people. And there are plenty of people around who are very happy to encourage those beliefs. Um, and, and that's something that I feel very strongly about, particularly with social media now. So, yeah, I, I think that um, I hope the message behind this book is, um, is, is clear and that, uh, and, and that people will, will, will take away the right spirit of it. Well, um, I, I think it's a book that everyone should read. And for those looking for it, you can find it on Amazon. And also, uh, Another Mother's Son is, is on Amazon. Um, yes, um, that, the Amazon Prime. You can certainly buy um, the book on Amazon. But I also hope for people who are able to get out or to, um, to buy independently. Um, yes. there, there are also uh, sites where you can buy from independents. There are independent bookshops who yes. have had a very, very difficult year. So I hope that the, the independents will get plenty of support as well. I, I so agree with you. And you have a website and your website is? JennyLacote.com. Jenny, I thank you. I thank you for bringing this story out. Um, again, we can never forget. And uh, I look forward to reading the next chapter, your next novel. So thank you. I, I want to thank you so much for joining me here today and for you know this work that you've done and never forgetting. Okay, thank you very much, Silvia. It's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it.